internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Right, I'm joined today by Madeline Heather of the Reclaim Me podcast, and you're in the Australian Time Warp, and you're coming to us from tomorrow. So I am. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully tomorrow. How's tomorrow look for us? It's rainy. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you? I should have had you look up the lottery numbers okay. for us before we got on. There's actually a big draw we're that's gone. happening here today, so it's. It's all like lottery's big deal. So I can maybe send you uh, at the end of today who won. It's 160 million. So it's a big. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. I, by the way, if I if we if I win 160 million dollars, it's unlikely this episode ever airs. I mean, I'm gone. <laughs> like you're never like. <laughs> I'm at a beach somewhere. It's not raining. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's pouring down rain here. Uh, we just discussed. Erica is uh, is joining us today from Howdy. her closet. <laughs> And uh, this is a different day from you, for you guys listening from last week. But uh, for me, um, it's still the same day. And no, I still haven't showered since the <laughs> since I went to the gym this morning. I so can verify he is wearing the same t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> right. Also, hair still looking very much the same as it did as it did this morning. Uh, Madeline, however, has had plenty of time this morning to get herself uh, readied and, and beautified all ready for the show because uh, Erica doesn't know how time zones work. Hey, it's pretty tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so what what time is it for you, Madeline? I know you like we I saw that you like got on the Zoom an hour early and I know it's morning for you. Yeah, it's quarter past six in the morning now. Quarter past six in the morning. So you got up and got on the Zoom at five in the morning. <laughs> Yeah. And we weren't there. That's all. It, it's not. It's not a hassle in the world. I actually posted the most recent uh, episode while I was on, so it was a very productive hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> See, and, I, and I, I'm already into like the middays post lunch lulls oh, for yeah. me. I'm already. Oh yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm this tired. Weather is and I've got another interview after this one. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Not at all. Uh, so, Madeline. Um, you have to tell me about yourself. You, you haven't. I, I don't know much because uh, Erica's really been slacking lately and doesn't do any research on <laughs> our guests. Um, I, I have this is what I have that you are a podcast host, which believe it or not, I already knew, um, <laughs> and uh, a speaker and advocate and and survivor, um, which is which is cool because that's kind of what the the whole concept of reclaim me or podcast is all about. So. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. I know that you have a red border collie named Archie, and then there's a sub note. It has its own letter that says he's adorable. <laughs> he is. I do. I'm a I'm a dog <laughs> mom to a beautiful four year old red border collie. Uh, he's adorable. Uh, we actually when we go for a lot of walks around like the local community, he's a bit reactive to other dogs, but um. People know me locally as Archie's mum or Hot Dog's mum because he wears this um, this little harness <laughs> and I just got him these little things on the side of it that say Hot Dog. So 
It's just <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> it's hot dogs, mum. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, I, I work for. <laughs> yeah, he's honestly, he's like, <laughs> I can't deal with him. He's he's literally looking at me right now, and he's just Aww. like the cutest thing in the world. He's a handful because <laughs> obviously border collie, but um, no, he's adorable. Uh, he's he's been a breeze to look after, and, and you know he's just um, he's got such a personality as well. So every time you get home, he makes you so happy. It doesn't matter what mood you're in. Somebody's <laughs> excited to see you when you walk in the door. So it's pretty brilliant to have him. Um, but I mean, about me, other than being a dog mum, I'm a feminist and an advocate. Um, and like you, you just mentioned, Bob, a survivor. Um, I also work full time outside of everything that I do. Uh, I specialize in like business improvements. So I go into businesses and try and fix up the way that they manage their processes primarily in government. So um, that's it's very different, I think, to what we're doing by having open discussions here. Um, but, yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, nice. Yeah. So I have a, I have an adorable dog, too. His name is Mac, and he's a German short hair pointer. And he steals our TV remotes. That's his new thing. <laughs> like We were talking this morning, Erica, about how he steals our dumbbells. Uh-huh. We've had... The third since then, there's been a, a whole uh, in our house. There has been like an investigation launched because the TV remotes from the living room keep disappearing, and like all the the kids all have in their rooms in our room and in the living room all have these like cheap Vizio TVs mm-hmm. that have the same remote. Uh-huh. And so, like, we've been like the kids are like on lockdown. Like, I know you little bastards are losing your remote <laughs> and stealing our remote. And uh, after the interview this morning. I went through the back. I saw something in the backyard that Mac had drug outside, and I went out there, and there was a pile of three chewed up TV remotes. Oh my god! In the backyard, oh my god! He collects them in a nice little, <laughs> nice little pile. He just takes them out one at a time. Adorable. He's a bastard. Well, I have yeah. a bulldog <laughs> named Rocco, and he's perfect in every way. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and tell her tell her what your other adorable pet is. Oh yeah, I have a bearded dragon. Actually, a native to Australia. They are. They're so beautiful. (laughs) Madeline, that's not the reaction I was hoping for. (laughs) I like to pile on to Erica about her disgusting lizard that she takes baths with. Yeah, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't know how to look after one, but I love them. Yeah, oh, apparently easy. you take baths with them no. and you wash behind its ears. Well, yeah, so I do. I do take a toothbrush sometimes and <laughs> give them a little cleaning. <laughs> True or false? You've sent me pictures of of you giving that thing a bath. Yes, I am not in the bathtub with it. But I yes. can only assume you're in the bathtub no. with it. No. <laughs> How uncomfortable to be hunched over the tub to scrub your lizard. <laughs> Gotta be like the weirdest sentence I've ever heard. Right. Uh, speaking of that, I always I always uh, like to uh, hello, Mrs. Cantor. I'm glad you're listening, Erica's mom. Um, so, so Madeline, you you've done all that. You have, you have this this business that you do that 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 pays your bills, and then you do all this advocacy work. Uh, how did that How did that come to be? I I want you to share as much of your story as you're comfortable sharing. The what led you to you know into the ad- advocacy because obviously you are a survivor. So however much of that story you want to tell and how that led you to a place where you want to stand up for other survivors. Yeah, sure. Um, 
So it was really at the at the beginning of COVID, I think here, uh, you know, March 2020 time. It was right at the peak or the beginning of Me Too movement. Um, so I was obviously experiencing the social media um, phenomenon that everybody else was experiencing as well. And I started to share tidbits, and I'd shared tidbits before of my my previous experiences. Um, and as I started to share. There were people from all over the world that started to connect with me and message me and tell me their stories. And I just felt like through that process, what I was getting was a whole heap of people that wanted and needed validation for their stories, somebody to trust in and how incredibly powerful it was just in that moment to share one thing. So I was having all these individual conversations with different people sharing different parts of my story and they would share things with me. And a lot of them actually were men as well who would connect with me saying they've never told anybody in their lives that this has happened to them or this happened to them as a child or, you know, really Mm -hmm. horrible things to hear. But also it was so lovely to almost feel like there was an instant like community connection. Um, So I kind of thought that all of these people should connect in some way. And, with you know, short of starting, you know, a massive group, I kind of just thought, you know, maybe we can share some of these stories in a more public platform. And that's kind of how I got the idea to start the podcast, which I've really centered around putting the victim's voice at the center of crimes and uh, and making sure that their voices are heard and not, you know, sometimes what we see is the the media narrative, you know, where you've done a three hour interview with somebody and you've got five minutes of a news article kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's not really a representation. Right. Um so that's really where it got started. But I guess, um, yeah, my experience personally was that I was sexually assaulted, trigger warning, uh, as a 14-year-old by my friend's father. So um, my mum dropped me off uh, on a Friday after school to my friend's house and it was like the cool dad, I guess, in inverted commas, um, because he was going to let us drink. He was going to give us alcohol that night. And she had this like genuine gut feeling that night anyway. <laughs> she was like you know, something's not right. She'd never met him before, but he allayed her concerns. I think he was a pretty smooth talker. And then, yeah, I went into the house with another girl as well. Um, And then the three of us proceeded to get drunk pretty much with this guy. Um, And we had quite a lot to drink as well. So it's pretty concerning. But I guess as a 14-year-old who's like a bit of a rebel and finding yourself and everything, it's you think in your mind at that time how cool it is, like somebody's right. treating you like an adult for the first time mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right. So that happened, um, I think, just to go kind of quickly, it was more of a thing where, like, he was trying to, I believe, personally, get access to me and make me more vulnerable in this situation. Originally we were, like, told we could go and speak to these young boys that we'd been talking to and stuff, and then it kind of came to the fact that we had to be in the room with him his partner was also there at this time as well. Um, and then I kind of, we, we got more and more drunk and then I don't really remember a lot until uh, trigger warning. I woke up on the ground on the really rough carpet in his living room, um, which had like a, a staircase that kind of went up so you could see down into the living room from the set, from the first story. Um And he was sexually assaulting me and it, I, in my mind it went on for hours but as well, I think like with your density of memory um, and also being intoxicated at the time, it could have been half an hour, it could have been 10 minutes. But I think in my mind, mm-hmm. being in and out of consciousness, it felt like hours. Um, and his partner actually saw what was happening and went back to bed. 
and then came back down sometime later and then she was the one who called the police. Um, I had immediate intervention from law enforcement, so police arrived on the scene. Um, I went in the back of the divisional van with them back to the police station uh, and then there was immediate interviews. My parents were called straight off to the Royal Children's Hospital with the specialist sexual assault team Um, and then there was a prosecution. He was found guilty of penetration of a child uh, under the age of 16, I believe the charge is. Um, And that was a sentence of two years that he got. Um, So for me, it's just a bit of a frustrating thing when I look back on that as well, because while you feel blessed to be a part of the cohort of the 1% of people who do get a conviction in a sexual assault case, it's a Mm -hmm. bit of a piss take, to be honest, like to kind of (laughs) sit there and be like, you know, two years for, you know, child sexual abuse is not really um, adequate. Well, I'm sure he changed your life forever yeah. in those moments. Mm, definitely. And you got two years for it. Yeah, that's yeah the Australian well, that's um, system is very different to the States. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know if he served the full time either. I think he would have been out quite quickly. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it's not much different no. in the United States. No. You know, our, our prison system loves to lock people up for long, long times if they are uh underprivileged or underclassed or drug offenders. a minority yeah. yeah drug offenders but um yeah sexual assault for some reason always seems to have these almost slap on the wrist sentences um but but i think it's it's really powerful what the work that you're doing in not only speaking about your story but also in giving other people the opportunity to speak so when you started doing all that advocacy, what what plan were you were you telling the stories? Were you on social media? Like where were you where were you beginning to share these stories? Yeah, it was just through Instagram. So I did like a couple of small picture posts where I'd just written like a couple of sentences, you know, kind of basically saying that some and alluding to the fact that something had happened to me. Um, and then I did speak about it in more detail. And I did, I remember I was so nervous doing this. I did my first ever video on Instagram in 2020. And I was, I'd like set it all up. And I just remember my heart pumping and I was trying to send it to a friend to be like, is this okay? It was, it's so different to now, but, um, but yeah, I I posted a video because I had a lot of questions from people who had said that they'd been assaulted very recently and who were too scared to go and get the medical examination kit done or the rape kit. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'd spoken to a lot of people. So I went through the process of what that was like in my state for me but also, you know, it was difficult because I was a child at the time, so I don't know what the difference would be kind of with the system. But I guess just sharing that with a few people allayed a lot of their concerns and some of them had waited a bit of time. But, you know, you can wait two or three days and still potentially get um, evidence. You know, you might not get the plethora that you would have at the beginning of the crime, but you can still get some Mm -hmm. stuff from it. So. Yeah, there were some people who went and got that. That was um, pretty much where it started, I think. It just started a a discourse and then, as with everything on social media, there was a heap of people who were against me or not for me Um, and that was something I really experienced with the local community I came from when the sexual assault happened and afterwards a lot of um, the local kids, my friends' families, didn't want me hanging out with them. Um, Like I got called a hussy, I got kind of told that I people didn't want their um their me to be at sleepovers anymore as if I was kind of the 
person who had enticed him in some way to do that and I was the bad news. Um, So it kind of changed a lot of things and that still sadly was some of the community reaction that I had with people kind of with a discourse that has gone on for a long time that it didn't actually happen. Um, And I'd never gotten a chance to fully share my story. You know, there are people out there that are making those statements without any evidence at all. And I know that he got a conviction. I know that there was DNA evidence um, and he, it was irrefutable evidence. That's why he pled guilty and there wasn't a trial. So I just wanted that opportunity, I guess, as well with the podcast to share in detail everything that, that happened, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of be like, you know, F you, (laughs) I win. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me that even in 2020, when you're telling the story of how when you were 16 this happened that there's still was your was your social media following at the time was it primarily just like your friends or did you have a following beyond that already not really i mean it was mostly friends and friends of friends um you know and i'd follow uh-huh. like the local celebrity or something but it wasn't that big i didn't have a major following or anything like that um, but I guess any time that I spoke about this, they would go insane. And I think it was one of those things that people would share to the local members of the community and it would go wild within that community because everybody wanted to know more details, mm-hmm. I guess, more juice and more dirt about something that they'd known about for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's like community gossip. Yeah. <laughs> Do you Sexual assault is, is the most un, underreported crime out there in most places. In your case, it sounds like it was reported by uh, your attacker's partner. Yeah. You Do you feel like had she not done that, would you have been hesitant to report it? Yeah, 100%. And I don't – I think like as like a 14-year-old, you don't fully understand what's happened. Like, oh, for sure. you know, you're drunk for the first time. You don't fully understand the magnitude. And one of the reasons that we accepted the plea deal was because – when they, the police officers first interviewed me and asked me, I had said he might have. And I said that a few times because I wanted to protect my friend in some way. Like I didn't, uh-huh. I didn't really understand the implication of what I was saying by saying he might have. But in saying that, I mm-hmm. thought that I was maybe protecting my friend and her dad. And, mm-hmm. you know, initially at the police station as well, I just kept saying, don't call my parents, don't call my parents, don't tell my parents. And it wasn't because I didn't. I thought that I was going to get in trouble kind of thing. I think I just wanted to deal with it on my own at that Mm -hmm. immediate time. I don't know what would have happened after that, but I mean, I just remember my immediate responses and reactions as a kid and kind of, I don't think that I would have told my parents. And I think that if I hadn't have told an adult and I don't think I would have, then I don't think I would have come forward, at least not quickly. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and that's what people don't understand. I want to correct myself too. I said 16 and again, as you said, you were 14 when this happened. Um, but yeah, during, you know, 2020 was the big time, the Me Too movement when things really started coming out and you heard a lot of people saying, well, you know, well, why why would she just be coming out now if this happened so long ago and it, and it created this kind of culture of disbelief in a lot of, in a lot of ways and I, I just think it's it's important for people to understand from people who have been through the experience and are open to talking about it, like why that that is. There's so much going on, and I, I can't relate to it. It's it's never happened to me. 
but I try to understand that you know the the psychological trauma that you're going through when that happens as to why someone may not report why people don't. I mean, I mean, I don't. You, I'm sure you know the stats, but it's it's staggering the statistics of people that are assaulted and never report it. Oh yeah, I think it's less than 15% of people come forward. And the the data around that is people that seek medical attention, people that go to crisis services and shelters, and the people of that populace who report to police as well. Mm-hmm. So with, there is obviously a massive unknown volume of people there because there's a lot of people that don't seek any of those services. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a lot less than that. Uh, currently, I believe the latest statistics in Sydney and in the UK were less than 1.6% of cases are convicted mm-hmm. as well. So less than 1% that go from the go to police stations end up in a conviction. And I think that's another difficult thing to grapple with because it's so multifaceted the reasons that any victim survivor won't come forward. And, you know, sadly, a lot of the people that I've interviewed on the podcast, which does make it difficult with defamation and trying to make sure legally that we're not in any trouble is that most people have either started the process and it's too traumatic for them or they've not got enough evidence even when they've got a lot. So people that are trying to get through the system aren't able to. The people who are, less than 1% of them are getting a conviction and they're traumatised at the end of it. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people know this anecdotally and that's the huge barrier that comes forward with going to the police and, and taking action against this. And it's a difficult thing because it's just a system that you know, ensures silence. It's a system that, you know, it doesn't benefit a lot of people and especially when you've got such, you know, short conviction rates and things like mm -hmm. that, it kind of makes you think, is it even worth it? And and if you extrapolate those numbers out, so you're talking less than 1% of the less than 15% that are reported. I mean, so, you know, the number... And and of those fifteen percent, they're not all reported to police. They're reported somewhere. So I mean, you're you're talking about just a tiny fraction of a percent end up in a conviction. Did you deal at all with? I've spoken to other survivors that have talked about this. That where they ultimately accepted, you know, agreed to a plea deal because if they didn't, they were going to have to get on the stand and tell their story in front of everyone, and that was just too much for them to deal with. Did that, did that come up for you to, was, you know, did the, did the prosecutors make clear that if you, if we take this to trial, you're going to have to tell your story? I don't think that I had a choice. I don't remember having a choice because I was only a kid. And I think my parents are acting on behalf of me as my guardians. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that that was kind of what was put to them, that there is a, um, a, a thing that we can do that would guarantee a conviction. And I think this is where people take the, the lesser deal just to guarantee the conviction. Um, but also I think the relayed back to the parents in the situation was more of the fact that, you know, Maddie had said things like um, he might have and under cross-examination she's going to get absolutely hammered on things like that. Do you think that she's in a mental position at current state to be able to go through that? And I think the decision was made, if we can get a conviction, let's just go for the conviction. Um, and even right. in that case, that is so kind of unheard of. But um, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people that I've spoken to as well who've not been offered the opportunity to decide. You know, sadly, a case that I was speaking to recently, um, they basically said the Department of Public Prosecutions 
said to them, like, I'm sorry, but we don't act on behalf of you, the victim. We act on behalf of the state. So it's like the state wants a conviction. It doesn't matter what you want. It doesn't matter whether you want to get up on the stand or not. We're saying your best chance of getting a conviction is our best chance of getting a conviction. Therefore, we don't care what you say, which is, it's shocking, you know, that's another reason why people don't come forward. Sure. Okay, so after living your experience and starting to tell your story, how did you decide to take that out, to to move from social media into creating a podcast? Yeah, just through a lot of those discussions, and I think I had felt, I mean, I grew up as an elite athlete, and I'd always had a hobby that took up a lot of my time. And obviously during COVID, everything was crazy, and I thought I just wanted something to invest my time in that I could potentially make a difference with. And I knew that these stories were something that I wanted to share. So my initial goal was just to do 10 of them. And I had 10 people lined up ready to go. Um, mm-hmm. It was a steep learning curve trying to learn how to podcast. <laughs> you, know, yeah. it's, you think that it'll be easy. It's not. There's a lot of time and effort that goes into <laughs> right. the, everything. So um, yeah, I just decided that. So I did the first episode um, and that's my story. Um, so it wasn't an interview style. It's just me basically taking people through the details. So guess if you're listening to this and you do want to to learn more about the details of the story, it is in episode one. And then, yeah, from there I just started to interview more and more people. And I guess the trauma side of it, it doesn't just have to be sexually based offences. It can be any type of offence like psychological abuse. Um, it can be going through a traumatic injury. It can be domestic abuse, stalking, anything. And I wanted to make it as intersectional as possible so that other people – it's not just, you know, white women speaking out about sexual harassment and sexual assault. I really wanted to make it every single person who has experienced trauma and start the conversation about that. Because, you know, a lot of the time as well, I would get things like, well, men are survivors too. And it's like, yeah, I've actually had nine of them on. So <laughs> it's something right. that I actively highlight. So right. absolutely men are survivors too. Right. Yeah. And you, you've released uh, close to 50 episodes at this point. Um, do you have a regular release schedule? It seems like they're just kind of at random dates when they drop. Yeah, so it's usually um, weekly. I took a, a month off uh, in just recently okay. to give myself a bit of a break with the uh, with everything going on with work and everything. But yeah, it's usually uh, weekly episodes that drop. Um, it's going. I've been able to get a lot. I think fifty sounds less, but I've I've also set it up in a way. I'm not sure if I can go back on now. I'll do like episode fifty, part one episode 50 mm-hmm. part two and now i'm just oh, like right, yeah so i think there's like 75 there and i'm just like it's not representative <laughs> oh wow i don't know if i can go back on that now as well like you know you choose a oh path. you can trust <laughs> you know how many iterations there have been of the truth and justice numbering system like i i started off like just doing like episodes in order and i was like halfway through season two which was just episode number 87 or something and then I was like, well, I should differentiate this. So I went back and renumbered them all as 101, two, and then season two was 2012, and then went back and changed it again to season two episode. It, yeah. It's not fun. Definitely don't wait another 200 episodes to do it because then your producer, Mike, will be really mad because he's got to go back and change every single episode. Uh, but you can do it. Um, so uh, the, the case we have today – is uh, uh, your case, Matt? Uh, no, not your case. I just saw Maddie, and I was, I was like, "Wait, your case?" <laughs> like I didn't make that connection. Um, the the case is Maddie Lane's case, and she's a sexual assault survivor. And her attacker was recently convicted. 
Um, so why don't you go ahead and, and talk to us a little bit about, about this case and, and this, I haven't seen this, heard this episode. Is this an episode from the show? Yeah. So it's dropping next week. Um, and there's kind of two okay. cases that I wanted to highlight. Um, and they're going up in se- sequence over the next uh, three or four weeks. Um, okay. and Maddie Lane's is definitely the first one. It's not being reported on here. She did get a conviction, I guess. Basically, what had happened was it was it was during the height of the COVID uh, isolation in Australia. Sydney and Melbourne were pretty much completely shut down. Um, but I think in Sydney you could go to people's houses and she'd met this guy on Tinder. And they'd gone over and decided to smoke a joint together and watch a scary movie and eat some food. And that was the plan. It was all going well, but she'd made it really clear she didn't want to sleep with him. Um As the night kind of progressed, she got really tired. They went to bed. The bed was like a massive bed, and she did stay there because um, job insecurity, I guess, at the time. She worked for Flight Centre, and this is the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, Mm -hmm. Flight Centre is a travel agency. So, you know, she did lose her job quite quickly after that anyway because of the redundancy. Um, So there was that. There was also just the fact that she kind of felt okay with this guy. He said, no, that's fine. You know, we don't need to sleep together. It's completely normal. He kind of had a setup apparently as well where there was like two double beds next to each other. So it was a giant space that there, it was in between them at the beginning. Um, during the evening, he consistently persisted, I guess, to try and, uh, kiss her and then to try and do more with her. And she would consistently say no. And then after a period of pressure, she would kind of turn around and, go, okay, well, if I just do this, maybe he'll get off me. So she'd kiss him Mm -hmm. and then he would get off her and then it would go back to normal and they would talk for a little bit. And she kind of, and I want to highlight that to people as well, because I think there's this misconception that sexual assault happens like my case does only, or sexual assault happens by getting abducted in a dark alley. And Mm -hmm. sexual assault is a, a consent violation as well. So this is somebody who's been pressured and coerced into performing acts that they do not want to perform. There's a height mm-hmm. difference. There's a size difference. There's a there's a, a lot of different things going on. And in these moments, he wasn't charged with these at all. But in these moments, I don't believe that she's consenting at all. And I do mm-hmm. think that when she went to the police about this, they did kind of say to her, well, you could go for this, but she just decided to go for Uh, what kind of happened next. Um, So over a period of a couple of hours, I think this had happened on and off. Um, He then kind of, I think, got frustrated and got on top of her and held her down and then sexually assaulted her. So she was trying to get him off by, like, pushing his chest away at the beginning and then she was trying to push his hips away towards the end while while saying, please stop, please stop, Mm -hmm. don't know. Um, so even leading up to that, there's the consent violation, but even in this moment, I think it's quite clear that this is sexual assault. Um, and it's kind of worth saying, I guess as well, I will, I say sexual assault because in the state that she is in sexual assault is an encompassing crime that includes penile penetration. It's not just, it's not other crimes. Whereas in the state that I live in, it's a different crime where that where rape and sexual assault are classed as two different crimes. So in this case, it is the penetration with a penis, um, that's the crime that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. She kind of was so frozen in that moment as well, and I think it's something we've spoken about at length in the episodes, is how you know terrible you personally feel when your reaction has not been to immediately fight or it's been to comply. And, you know, we go into a lot of detail about that. Her 
her initial response was like, you know, after you've had sex, you pee just so that you don't get a UTI kind of thing. And she sat on the toilet thinking about the ways that she could escape this situation because she was terrified as well at what had just happened. So there was early scenario testings and she kind of thought, I'm just going to wait until he goes to sleep, then I can exit. Mm-hmm. Um, she eventually was able to leave. He did wake up um, and I guess tried to stop her but not in a way that was, you know, he didn't hit her or anything like that. I think he tried to obstruct her exit and she was able to leave. Um, after that, I think she'd been on the phone to a few people because she'd been high as well, so you don't want to drive under the influence in any situation. Mm-hmm. She's sitting in a car kind of thinking, what do I do? Um, and then she ended up after some um, gentle nudging, and I think she contacted a rape crisis service as well. She went to a hospital um, where they were able to do a kit. And it wasn't just for, you know, the sexual assault kit. It was more for sexual health where you've got somebody mm-hmm. who's not used a condom. We don't know. He had told her that he'd had sex a few days before that with somebody else. So the potential for STIs, STDs, things like that as well is what mm-hmm. the primary reason for going was. But, yeah, when she did go, the kits were completed. Um, and then eventually she did end up going to court. Um, they did take the case. Uh, she went and she got a uh, a guilty verdict. Um, they didn't talk about the earlier crimes. They only talked about that one act of the penetration that had occurred. Um, and yeah, she got the, she got the guilty plea. So I guess, you know, in all of our minds, that sounds wonderful, mm-hmm. but I guess it's by also stating that the process that she had to go through was against the Sydney's top defense attorney, um, who's a woman. And there are a lot of men who are very wealthy and typically white who have this wonderful white woman come in. And I say that because it is bias. We do have a bias in our lives and it's important to highlight. Um, A lot of these men have these women defending them. And I think that there's some kind of bias there with the, with a jury as well. That's kind of like, well, if a woman's defending him, like Mm -hmm. he can't possibly be guilty kind of thing. But she, Mm -hmm. she had said so many horrible things to this poor girl on the stand, like, as she was crying and being cross-examined, she was basically saying, you're loving this, aren't you? In a way that's like, you must be seeking so much attention. And it's something that I hear so much that people have to go through. But the testimony went through, he was found guilty, and then it came to a secondary trial for the sentencing. So they've done the conviction. Yes, he's convicted. Then they have to do a separate thing, which is the sentencing. And it was the same judge who did that. The judge made a remark that blamed the victim in this case for the mm. crime and said that I don't believe that you would have said no the way that you did if you'd allowed all of this stuff to happen previously, which you have no right to say that. He's just been found guilty. Like, yeah, yeah. that's not fair. And then the standard um, time that somebody's given when they've been found guilty of a crime like this in the state of Sydney, in, sorry, in the state of New South Wales, um, is five to seven years. So the uh, judge kind of looked at him and poor me, um, poor boy, we don't want to ruin his life. He gave him a non-custodial good behaviour bond and kind of just sent him on his way. So there's, there's both of those um, decisions, the guilty verdict and the, pros- and the sentencing verdict by both sides are now being currently contested. It's just gone back up. But, yeah, I think it's something to highlight that within the system that we've got, even if you do get a guilty verdict, how unjust the system can be 
depending on one person and there's, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I couldn't believe that that was the case after a guilty verdict, that somebody could say, yes, you are guilty of this crime. A jury of your peers has found you guilty of this crime. There was DNA evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'd have somebody kind of come over the top and say he had a good character witness because he had a priest that attended. His friends said he's a good guy. He's been to counselling. He deserves to only have a good behaviour bond for a crime that most of the time gets five to ten years. That's it's terrible. Yeah. And and that episode is coming up soon on your feed. Yeah, it'll be dropping next next Wednesday morning, the first episode of that. Okay, so probably before this episode airs for us, so that'll be available. And then and then after that, um, I, I want to hit the Holly Harris case real quick. I do have another interview in seven minutes, so we'll have to zip through it pretty quick. Yeah, cool. Um, but I but I wanted to go ahead and share that one too. Yeah. So Holly um, Holly Harris was um, went through a trial recently, and she's had a not guilty verdict. Um, it's worth saying as well, I guess, in both cases, the offender or the alleged offender in both cases had texted and admitted to what they had done. So they had in writing that they had committed a crime. Uh, she basically went through what she did. She eventually went to the police. She showed them text messages that had him completely admitting to the fact that it was non-consensual and that there was an aggravated burglary or that was the charge that he was up for because he broke into her house. I think that we all had like pretty good feelings about the fact that people would respect that she locked her door. He broke into Mm. her house and (laughs) assaulted her um, and had texted her afterwards with the information that has said, you know, I admit to basically doing the crime. On the stand when he was cross-examined, he basically said that he did hear the door lock and he gained entry to her house through another door. So there was a not guilty verdict on all parts. And I think the commonality that I wanted to draw between the two of them was that both of them had evidence. Both of them weren't the standard offences, the standard, I guess, rape um, story that people tend to hear, but at the same time both of them are quite clear They've got mm-hmm. a, they've got an admission in writing in addition to that. And then, you know, you've got one that gained a conviction but got a non-custodial good behaviour bond as a sentence and then one that was found not guilty with a plethora of evidence that he's even admitted to um, in a number of formats. So it's just something that I guess in both of these cases we talk about a lot and Holly's has gained and is gaining a lot more attention now, especially through different areas. So I think it's... It's something that people are quite outraged to see happening. And I would like, you know, to talk more about the fact that, you know, or bring it into the zeitgeist at least that Maddie's case had that guilty verdict and that that was the the shocking outcome of that. And it's just kind of, it, it's not a, I heard a statement by somebody saying it's not a just, it's not a justice system, it's just a system. Yeah. And I think that it kind no. of really highlights that there are some major flaws here. And like you said before, Bob, like there are so many aspects to people not coming forward. And if you hear either of these stories, I think it really makes you kind of question whether that's something that you would do if you were ever in this position. Well, I think that voices like yours are critically important. I applaud the work that you're doing. Keep it up. Keep telling these stories. Uh, her name is Madeline Heather and the podcast is called reclaim me. Check it out. Those two stories that she just touched on are going to be airing here in the next couple of weeks. And there are close to 75 sounds like (laughs) other episodes (laughs) to choose from. Um, it's incredible work. It's been great meeting you, Madeline. Thank you so much for joining us. You too. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's lovely to meet you both. 
Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Kelly Barron's Brink. Our production manager and co-host is Erica Cantor. Music and show artwork was created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com and episode artwork is created by John Hayes. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. Make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. And thank you so much for listening. And make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.